Hello everyone, welcome to the New Humanist Podcast. I'm Damien, and this is episode 26, the fifth of part four. The topic for today is the problem with religious evangelization, Christian evangelization specifically, and issues that pertain to it. Now, this is an interesting episode in the sense that it's aimed primarily towards, one could say, a person of a religious disposition, a person who in some ways values Christianity, someone who values the West's Christian heritage, someone who thinks that Christianity as a belief system still has a role to play in the Western world, that has some contributions to make the advancement, to the growth, to the upward movement, one could say, of the Western mind. Now, to preface this to a wider audience, I mean, one would guess when one speaks of humanism, the tendency is to associate it with the decline of religion, right? That there's a positive relationship between the decline of religion and the advance of the humanistic cause, right? And historically, this has been true. The decline of religion has been viewed as a positive, as a good thing. There has been a, a celebratory undertone that has gone hand in hand with the institutional decline of religion. The weaker the churches get, the weaker the institutional construct becomes, the weaker the Christian message is, the better it seems, or so it seems, for the secular atheistic worldview. Okay? Now, the problem here is, as I've argued many points in the course of this podcast, directly and indirectly, is that the correlation between atheism and humanism is not necessarily a strong one. Okay? There is something negative, problematic, and in many ways undermining of the humanistic endeavor when one views it purely within a or via a atheistic framework. Okay? Atheism does not necessarily lend a hand, a strong hand, an affirmative hand, the cause of human upliftment, the cause of human betterment. When it concerns itself solely with man's life or human life within a mechanistic, non-purposive, purely materialistic framework, there are problems associated with it. And in fact, a pure critique of atheism, which is something that has to happen, is coming soon. Again, as I've engaged before, the new atheist critique of Christianity in many respects is self-undermining. The new atheism, as we know, with advanced by people like Dawkins, Harris, Hitchens, and so on, whilst their attack on religion was, well, one could say, needed, and certainly their critique of the Old Testament, and biblical literalism and overt emphasis on scripture, these things are valid, and I'm in many ways affirmative of that view. However, a critique of religion, unfortunately, invariably leads back to a critique of humanity, a critique of man, a critique of God, by critiquing God, we critique man as a whole, and not in a constructive way. It is the undermining of man. And this is a much deeper point, which I'll have to elaborate further, but my fundamental affirmation is that religion is man-affirmative. When religion is done correctly, that's important. When religion is done right, it supports the human betterment project. This is an assertion, one which I'll continue to defend going forward in the course of this podcast. Now, it is important in this context, right, for the listener who's wondering, you know, hey, who cares about Christian evangelization? Why should I be bothered about the efficacy of efforts to advance the Christian faith? Let the whole thing fall apart, right? Let Christian evangelization fail, right? Let the churches weaken, right? Let the faith die. Now, I understand why this, this might be the case, especially if the listener is someone of an atheistic disposition, and someone who doesn't believe in God, doesn't like God, rejects God, and wants to see the whole religious enterprise just fall apart, right? And to be honest, I am somewhat sympathetic to that view in the sense that my concerns with religion is very real. Okay, I am concerned about religion. I am concerned about its efficacy. I am concerned about its ability to advance human betterment. Does it contribute adequately, constructively, to the question of human upliftment? And I've raised my concerns. However, what we cannot ignore is that religions are also in the business of growing. They're also in the process of developing. Religions are also, one could say, speaking of the Western world, fighting back. As a person who is aware of what's going on in the Christian world, purely from the standpoint of experience, 
having been a part of the process, having followed it for quite a while, I know that our efforts since, I mean, speaking of the Catholic world, certainly since the end of the uh, Second World War with the Second Vatican Council, the rise of many of these Protestant missionaries in America, the rise in evangelical Christianity, the rise in smaller churches, the growth in these decentralized efforts to evangelize, the rise in these Bible societies, new forms of evangelization, etc., etc. There are many efforts to advance the Christian faith, to, to evangelize, to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. As cliched as that might sound, these things are taken very seriously by those who are involved in that endeavor. Okay? For example, if you look at the Western world today, certainly from a North American or Anglo-American perspective, many efforts are under to advance the Christian faith. One example is apologetics, the need to defend Christianity, at least its intellectual foundations against secular attacks coming out of mainly from academia, but also from popular culture. The supposedly scientific basis for atheism is one such aspect, right? That somehow we can scientifically disapprove God, right? That science tells us that God does not exist, right? That science negates the need for belief in the transcendental. This has been strongly challenged and in many ways effectively countered within intellectual tradition, certainly in the United States, with the advances in philosophy, but particularly in natural theology, right? And the need to bring a strong theological understanding, right? Because one of the problems historically, and even today, it must be said, has been the over-textual focus, right? The fact that Christianity as a belief system has been very biblical. People are preaching the gospel. The over-emphasis on scripture and authority and dogma, etc., has not served the cause of the Christian faith, right? Hence, the need to defend the faith, okay? That's an interesting point. To defend the faith and the defense itself can be even posited as a form of evangelization. You make a strong case for the faith and say, oh, that's a way to bring people into the church. That's one such example. And I think people like William Lane Craig, who made this tour of the UK, maybe I'll do an episode on that, where he defended the faith going to many places, prominent places in the UK. In fact, he was supposed to debate Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, a new atheist who wrote The God Delusion. But Dawkins, actually, interestingly enough, when Craig got to Oxford, I think he basically pussied out at the end. Uh, interesting. But uh, yeah, my point is that that's point that's worth considering, right? And of course, there's a very, very popular debate between William Lane Craig and Sam Harris, and much bigger, I think, with Christopher Hitchens, and of course, with Lawrence Krauss. So this is happening, guys. Uh, The Christians are, in a way, fighting back. And this is especially true within the the Catholic world, which is, you know, more integrated. It has better organization, right? It has an army of evangelists, right? Not as effective, one could say, as the Protestant ones, certainly not the evangelicals, but a lot of effort is going into evangelizing, certainly in Asia and Africa, right, in the developing world, and actually some progress has been made. And so they're doing their job, one could say, to evangelize. As Europe becomes secular and America becomes secular, the hope now is to strengthen or to Christianize Asia and Africa. Because these countries are not Christian to start with, right, and that's where most of the people are. So that's interesting. And also, we have the scientific dimension as well. There are efforts going on in the, in the scientific field, particularly in the philosophy of science, and even in applied sciences as well, interestingly enough, of trying to integrate a Christian worldview with a, a scientific one. Okay? Of course, these things are very much a work in progress, and uh, you cannot consider them as authoritative, at least they are not into the mainstream of culture, but efforts are underway. My point is, uh, guys, Christianity is not a done deal, not in the West, and it's still an effective force. It's still making, one could say, inroads into Western culture. Maybe not in, a, in the most effective way, but it is doing something. My concern here, in the course of this episode, Is it doing it right? Is it doing it well? Is it doing the right thing? Is it doing the things it ought to be doing? Looking at it from a broader, more foundational perspective. 
what is happening with the Christian faith with respect to its advancement, with respect to its articulation, with respect to how its tenets are communicated to the masses. What is happening there? That is an interesting question. And to engage this, I felt uh, we need to look at how the faith is going wrong, right? What is it doing wrong in terms of how it is evangelizing the faith? What is it getting wrong in terms of its communication, articulation, right? The points of emphasis when it comes to the advance of the faith to the modern, secular, Western mind, all right? And to understand this, I would engage three points on how the churches, its representatives, and the institutional construct, one could say, are going wrong. All right, point number one, the problem with Christian evangelization today is, ironically, the churches themselves. The problems today lie with the churches, the institutions. There's something wrong with the construct. There's something wrong with the, the whole image that it creates, right? There's something wrong with its uh, persona, right? Its uh, social personality, if one could even use that expression. The institution, just from, from the standpoint of outsider looking in, it just doesn't look right. Churches which seem like a relic of a bygone era, they seem old, they seem backward, they seem ancient. They don't seem like institutions which have anything relevant to offer. As an example, if you look at a company like Google right, or Apple, they have something about them. Of course, they, they provide important services, right? That's the most critical point. But they just have this thing about them. Google, right? Just the image, just the, the aspect. Just if you look at their videos of their campuses, their facilities for research, workplace. I mean, just Google as a company, as an institution, it has something about it. It has, it has a legal personality as an organization, of course, because it's under its um, parent company Alphabet. But there's something about the idea of Google, right? Or having something to do with Google. If someone says they work for Google, I'm sure that's going to raise a number of questions. Hey, you work for Google. How's that? How does that work out? How's the experience, right? How does it feel to work for a company like that? There's a sense of excitement and curiosity that goes with it. The same clearly cannot be said for the churches in the West, certainly not for the Catholic Church, but frankly, I would say for any Christian organization, it just does not have that power. It does not have the appeal. It does not command that, frankly, respect. There's something wrong with the institutions themselves, okay? So this is a point of concern when it comes to evangelization. Point number one, the institutional construct itself seems to be getting something wrong. There's something wrong with it. It just doesn't look right. It doesn't seem right, okay? Point number two, the people. Right, the Christian evangelists, people doing the evangelizing, the people who are in the business of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, these people themselves seem a bit weird. I mean, let's put this in perspective, folks. I mean, most of us who are in the West, who come from the West, who identify with the West, we have at some point or the other encountered these people. We encounter their videos, we encounter their messages, we listen to them, we hear them speak, we have seen them. We may have been an audience member, listen to these people preach and proselytize, etc. And there's something really weird about them as a whole. They just don't seem right. And again, just leave aside all the things that they're saying. Just them as people. Okay, look at them. If you look at someone, let's say a representative from Google. Okay, let's go back to Google, right? If you look at this in there, you know, big conferences. They come on stage, they speak very eloquently. They have nice slides, beautiful background. They speak about issues which are very current, very relevant. Just the things they communicate, the way they communicate. There's something appealing about the person, people who are involved in that enterprise contrary to what we find within religious institutions, the churches. I mean, the people who represent churches, bishops, the priests, the nuns, people who are proselytizing, who are in the business of evangelizing, you know, they just seem a bit weird, okay? And that's a deeper point, folks, and I will get into it as to why this is the case. But that is a point of concern. When we talk about the need to advance the Christian faith, the people doing it need to be credible. They need to be authoritative. They need to be believable. 
More importantly, they need to be likable. All right, they need to be relatable, and that is not the case. All right, point number three, and that is the teachings of the church. The main problem today, I would say, probably the most important problem, is the teachings themselves, which I think circles back to the institution that, of course, flows back to the point number two: the people. One of the main problems with Christian evangelization today is its teachings, right? The articulation of its doctrines, the message that it advances. There's a problem there. There's something not right about the church. Something not right about the way they communicate. Something not right about the way they articulate their points of view. There's something not right about the messages themselves. Now, mind you, it's not the doctrines themselves, of course, but there's something in terms of how it's articulated, how it's presented, the point of emphasis. So there could be some good things there. There are nuggets of truth. But teachings themselves, how they're articulated, how they're presented. And of course, this works together with the other two factors, the people who are there to deliver the message, to advance its teachings and doctrines, and the framework within which it is communicated, the churches, the institutional construct, etc., etc. So these three points, okay, one, the institution itself, the construct, that itself is a problem. That itself is a inhibitory factor when it comes to the advance of the Christian faith, when it comes to the effective articulation of its message of truth and goodness. Point number two, the people, right, its representatives who are there to do a job, who are there to deliver the good news, who are there to articulate the faith, who are there to spread the gospel, right? Were there to inspire hope and bring the good news, the light of Christ to the world. There's something wrong with them. Point number three, of course, is the doctrines, the teachings. Not necessarily the content, but how it's articulated, how these are emphasized. Right. Point number one, let's take them one at a time, folks. Okay, point number one, the construct. There's something wrong with the churches. What do I mean by this? Well, I mean, first of all, when one speaks of evangelization, right, there's a tendency for us to think the churches doing it all right. Okay, so when the churches or the institutions which will send out these people to spread the good news, to evangelize, they have all of their bases covered, right? That the churches are in perfect shape, that they're doing everything they can to improve. They're doing everything they can to, to get things rolling. The wheels are oiled, right? The machinery is in place, right? The software programs updated. It's a well-trained, well-oiled machine. And when I speak of religion, I think a good example is the Catholic Church because it is large, it's global, it's expansive. And it's institutional. It has organization, it has leadership, it has hierarchies, etc. It has systems, one could say, within the construct in terms of how it's governed, how it manages its people, how it delivers its content, right? And so on. So within that framework, religions and organizations like multinationals have many things in common. The difference, of course, is that organizations, particularly private companies, or in this case, public companies, which are fundamentally private, their shares are sold publicly for fundraising, etc. But the point is the organizational structure, the leadership is very much focused on a certain set of objectives, profit, growth, innovation, market capture, customer acquisition. You can work through those metrics. And what you see with all of that is the need for excellence, the need for perfection, the need to improve constantly. Now, the problem here is that when it comes to Christian evangelization, the churches, the institutions, again, the Catholic Church is a good example, is that they are not governed by those same demands. Those requisites on how institutions should be governed, how they ought to be governed, how they ought to function, is not applicable. It's not expected. It is not binding, right? And say that leadership is not bound by any commitment to improve, to make things better, to make things more effective. It's like saying, you know, you just go on and carry on until things break down to a point where you're basically compelled to make changes. Okay, and I'm speaking basically as an insider, folks. I mean, if the listener happens to be an atheist or a secularist, I'm speaking from a Christian perspective here, right? The church is are trying to engage the world, they are trying to engage the secular mind, they are trying to advance the Christian message in a way that's more pertinent, that's more relatable to the people. But the institution itself is not relatable. The institution, what it stands for, what it looks like from the outside, 
in this case, churches and into old buildings. And it just doesn't seem like an effective organization. It doesn't seem like an effective, well-run machine, okay? Unlike private organizations, unlike private companies, unlike big businesses, which despite their size are made to be innovative. They're made to be required to be innovative. They're required to be lean and mean, or they're expected to get leaner and meaner, especially when times are tough. And this is especially true with with the churches, this is especially true with Christianity, where things are tough, where things are pretty bad, right? Where things aren't great. And the institutions need to get leaner. They need to get meaner. They need to get more effective in how they communicate their message. But they need to present a better version of themselves. And this requires internal upliftment. The organizational structure needs to be improved. The organization needs to become more relevant. The organization needs to become more effective in doing its job. It needs to have a better PR campaign. It needs to have a better PR agency, right? It needs to have a new look, okay? And the church, the Western world, the Protestant and Catholic just don't have it. They don't have the right representatives. They don't have the right leadership. The construct is screwed up. And that has not been addressed. Now with churches in the West, they are in bad shape, right? Their numbers are collapsing. I can't speak from a Catholic perspective. There's been a fall off in followers, right? The rise of nuns, lack of attendance to churches, the decline in the number of priests, the decline in the number of seminarians the complete collapse in the number of women entering religious life, certainly as nuns. There are good reasons why that's the case. But my point is, if you look at all these underlying facts, it becomes apparent that the churches are doing poorly. They're doing terribly, right? And for an outsider, when you have religious representatives come and saying, you know, you should follow God, you should follow church, you should come back to the church. Okay, let's say, speaking of former Catholics who have left the church, and in America, there are millions of them, by the way, and certainly in Ireland and the whole of the Western world. If you're a Catholic, most likely now, you're almost like a former Catholic especially if you're in generation X, Y, Z, if you're in that group, you're most likely to be a former Catholic. It's just how it is. Why is that? Why have people left it? Why have people left the institution? It's because the institution is screwed up. It's not in good shape. It's not doing well. And people see it. People understand. So no matter how effective the evangelical efforts are, people look at the church and say, oh, look, this is your construct. Broken down churches, parishes are closing down. You know, the churches are not being painted. The infrastructure is not. It just looks shabby, right? It just looks unappealing. It's unappealing to young people. And people say, you know what? No. It is about how good your message is. It is about how important your teachings are. It's like the Pope, you know, goes around telling everyone, trying to be a representative of Christ. It just doesn't work. The churches that he governs are lousy. And that is a problem. And that is a point of concern. And that is a key factor underlying the failure of evangelization in the Western world. And with good reason. Point number two, the people. It's interesting in the sense that I want to speak more about the personnel who man the church, men and women, by the way, and the problem there. Look, and this is a complicated, this is a tricky subject. I mean, to put this in perspective, one speaks of religious people. One speaks of people who are involved in ministry. One who speaks of people who are there to evangelize the good news. There's something weird about them, isn't it, folks? There's something really awkward. There's something really, I don't know, just generally. Okay, I'm speaking from a Christian perspective, right? Again, let's say the Catholic Church. This is pretty obvious. This is pretty clear. There's something weird about religious people. When they come and talk about God, belief, and faith, etc., etc., but just look at them. The priests, the nuns. What are these people? They're celibates, right? These people are weird, just based on their lifestyle choice. Being celibate, folks, is weird. It's not normal. It's not natural. That itself is a huge turnoff for the listener, right? Some guy comes to you and say, you know, you had to follow God, you had to do this and that, you had to believe. But then the, the person's lifestyle, you know, the kind of choices that he has made, the kind of choices that he continues to make, just does not sit well with the average person, with most people. Again, celibacy is in the Catholic world, as far as I can understand, it's not just a question about refraining from having physical relations with someone. It's a lifestyle question because the commitment to chastity, I think that's the main argument, goes hand in hand with the commitment to poverty and sacrifice and humility, right? And it's like an institutionalized version. 
So if you look at it from that perspective, there's very little that is appealing about it, okay? How can you expect people to listen to someone talk about God and God's greatness, the good news, the promises of Jesus Christ, the better life, God's desire to make great things happen to you? You know, this is the kind of the rhetoric that is employed. And, and it's very difficult to make sense of that even, let alone accept, let alone be convinced in any way. When you look at the people, what does a celibate man know about life, right? What does a celibate man know about living a full life? What do they know about making money? What do they know about building a business? What do they know about living a life of excitement? life where it's defined by taking risks, by growing, right, by, by expanding. What do they know? And this is a point of concern, right? I mean, the thing is, how can you expect people, right, who are driven by other objectives, right, who want to build a life, who want to do well in life, right? If you're a guy, you know, you're not concerned about, you know, leading a celibate life, living like a hermit, right, and, and rejecting all your ambitions to negate your aspirations and just live your life for God's sake. I mean, at the end of the day, the message is in the person, right? If the person represents something, if the person embodies a certain lifestyle, embodies a certain character, a social character, public persona, everything that he or she says in some ways is resonant with who he or she is as a person, okay? So even if they talk about, you know, life being great, life being amazing, by serving God, by following God, you just have to look at the person who's saying it. Is that person credible, right? Does that person's message add up to who he or she is as a person, right? Oftentimes, I think quite logically, it is not, okay? And again, this is very clear in the Catholic tradition with priests and nuns, these celibate people. Who don't have much going on, it seems, at least to me. Now, of course, what happens in their personal life, in their spiritual life, that's secondary. I mean, everyone has a spiritual life. I mean, the only difference, of course, are these people, they spend much of their life in prayer. Its applicability is very narrow. It's not a universal condition, right? You cannot expect people, average people, to follow this, to listen to this, to adhere to these kinds of teachings. It just doesn't work. Hence, the teachings themselves are self-undermining, right? Because the people who are there to communicate the message, no matter how positive, no matter how effective, like let's say the good news of Jesus Christ, that God wants to save us, that God wants to lift us up, God wants to give us a future, that God wants to make our lives better, right? That we are complete with God, that God is an empowering force. I mean, these are the things, that, and these are fundamental tenets of the faith. Of course, they believe in the not is secondary, but the point, this is the articulation. This is what you hear. However, no matter how good this may sound, the person who's sounding these off, the person, you know, who's communicating this, the men and women who are doing this, they are not convincing. They don't look convincing. That is a problem, okay? What is hopeful about a celibate man? Not only is it a question about getting laid, but there's no passion, there's no romance, there's no, there's no social life, there's no nightlife, there's no travel, you know, there's no going out to a nice vacation with a person you were with, someone you like, you know, having a good time together, none of that. That whole range of experience is lost. And how can you expect them to tell us about life being good and happy? Right? Just think about it for a second. And of course, to say nothing on family and children and living for your future. I mean, these things matter, right? As you get older, you know, think about these things. And what happens then, right? What is the reference point? And this is a very common critique, certainly in places like England. What does a priest have to say about family? What does a priest have to say about marriage? These people don't do it. They have no experience. There's an experiential void. And it's a very critical concern from a personnel standpoint. It sends a bad message. It's bad PR, essentially. But this is not just about the priest folks. It's not just about the institutional leadership. Even the laity, I find a bit weird. In fact, I've already spoken about one of them, this goofball called Matt Frad. I've spoken about this guy before. This anti-porn activist, very popular. I don't want to say very, but relatively popular in the West, certainly the Anglo-American world. He's from Australia. And that's not a problem, folks. I like Australia. Australia's a good country, right? But the problem with him is that he's become this activist going around, you know, demonizing pornography. Again, the problems with pornography are there, and those are much deeper issues, which I won't get into here. But that doesn't really help advance the Christian message now, does it, folks? There's more to the Christian message than that, right? There's more hope. There's more goodness. I'm talking to the Christian here. Maybe I'm talking to the post-Christian here, right? 
See, a lot of people in the West who are secular, who are atheistic, who are humanistic, etc., are sympathetic to a Christian worldview, are sympathetic to what the Christian faith has to offer, right? In Europe, I know this, certainly in England. I think I made, made this observation. Even if people are secular, still value its Christian heritage. Certainly true in Europe. The Christian heritage doesn't matter. Anyway, the point is this. The churches have a lot of good things to say, I believe, but it has to be articulated correctly. It has to be articulated well. It has to be articulated by the right people. And that is not happening when you have weirdos like Matt Fred, you know, who basically goes around telling people you know, that pornography is bad and then, you know, how happy is his life, you know, that he's a happily married person. Watch this guy. He's crazy, man. I'm being judgmental, but I think I'm compelled to be. He's being a self-righteous hypocrite. Telling everyone about, you know, why pornography is bad. My impression, he probably has a problem with it himself. I mean, he clearly has something. Now, of course, now he, people like him will have a followership. They will have people who listen to what they have to say. They'll subscribe to their YouTube channel. They'll subscribe to their message. But the, the consequences are probably greater, I think. And in fact, I would even say the same thing for someone like Bishop Barron, who's a, who has a much bigger presence online on YouTube. He has a bigger following. He has these big ministries and so on. But I have my problems with him. In fact, I even wrote a piece right, on, um, on why he is wrong, why Bishop Barron is wrong, an essay, right, which you can check out at my website, and why he's wrong on the question of happiness. It's a very serious point. It's very serious to have such strong views about what makes people happy. And Bishop Barron has strong views on what makes people happy. And he says it all the time. But he's wrong in making that assertion. This is the guy who has a huge following, hundreds of thousands of uh, subscribers on YouTube, and he has a written number of books, etc., etc. But the message is, in many ways, it's wrong, okay? And, but these are the people who are representing the church. These are the people who are going around telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ, but they are bad representatives, okay? They don't represent the message themselves, okay? This goes back within the second point of how religious people make bad representatives because of their religiosity. <laughs> That's paradoxical, is it not? And this is, again, certainly true within the Christian framework. When you have celibate men and women running around trying to be the voice of God, the voice of hope and joy, of Christian joy, what are that supposed to mean? Joy that is devoid of sex and pleasure and, and the pursuit of power and, and honor, right? And that's the Bishop Barron framework, right? You reject all of this and you'll be happy. Now, this is very counterproductive, but that is the problem. That is the problem with the churches. These kinds of people being in representative roles, advancing the faith in the name of God, apparently. It's bad PR. Again, understand the paradox. This is despite the followership. This is despite the fact that they have a number of viewers. The representatives of the church are not great. They look weird. They dress weird. I mean, look at these people. I mean, it's like these monks. You know, once I was on the London Underground, it was probably on the Central Line. Three guys, right? They were Europeans. And they were interesting. They were dressed in these gray robes. I don't know what you call it. They were like monks, right? And my point is this. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to live like that. We want to follow God. Maybe some of us want to serve God, true, but we don't want to live like them, okay? That's point number two. The problem with religious evangelization, Christian evangelization, is the people themselves. Point number three, the third main problem with Christian evangelization is the teachings. It's the doctrines. Very clearly, the problem with Christian evangelization is the articulation of its message. The fact that you have people going around telling people how to live, what to do, what not to do. The fact that Christianity today has an overt moralistic doctrinal focus that is so concerned, so preoccupied about telling people what to do with their lives. This is a problem. Now understand this, folks. When I say the problem with religious teachings, when I say the problem with Christian evangelization is its teachings, is its doctrines, it is not to say the doctrines themselves are wrong. Okay? It is not to say the teachings themselves are wicked or misguided. Okay? To put this in perspective, Catechism of the Catholic Church, it has very clear teachings on sexual conduct, right? which is what concerns many people. Right? And that seems to be what drives people away from the church, from what I can understand, certainly in Europe. And the church's teachings are very clear, in a good way, right? It tells you very clearly, look, that adultery is not right, okay? I don't dispute that, by the way. You know, adultery it destroys marriages. If your marriage breaks down, the family breaks up, the children, you know, they'll suffer with parents not there. That's true. So purely in terms of its consequences, it's right. 
the teachings are right, okay? On rape, it's very clear. Rape is not right. It's wrong. It shouldn't happen, okay? No one will dispute that. Well, maybe some people, I don't know. So the church is really right in saying it. Even things like, you know, not having premarital sex. I mean, we can disagree with the, the practicality of it, all, but the fundamental teachings has some truth to it. The church is right in affirming these principles. Okay, and again, this is a much deeper topic as to why these teachings are there. It's not just to tell us what to do, but it's there to set a high standard and it causes us to aspire. That's a different subject. Oh, it's related. I'll get into that at some point in the future. But my point is the church is right in having this teaching. It's right in having these standards. But, but critically, there is so much more to the church. There's so much more to Christianity. There's so much more to the belief system that the Christian faith entails, which is not even a religion, by the way. It's not even just a religious teaching. There's more to it as a belief system, as a cultural system. Okay. Christianity, people may not realize, is a culture, is a vehicle for advancing a culture. Dare I say Western culture, and that, that might make a few people upset, but Christianity is a cultural force. It's about ideas, it's about knowledge, it's about institutions, it's about art, right? It's about architecture, poetry. I mean, if you look at a church, it has a certain style, a Gothic style. It has, it has so much to it. There are so many things that go into it. My point is there's so much history behind it. There's so much beauty to it. And these things also it can be a point of engagement. I think Bishop Barron probably has spoken about the need for beauty, but but I think he does a poor job articulating this. Again, this is people who may have listened to Bishop Barron. He says to evangelize through beauty, but I don't think it really makes a cogent argument. He just says, you know, you're talking about beauty, but that's not good enough. More work needs to be done. But he said, there's so much more to the Christian faith than just doctrines, right? And laws and these teachings, which are essentially perceived as inhibitory, right? They're basically viewed as undermining human freedom. So there's so much more to the Christian faith than just telling people what to do and what not to do, especially when it comes to sex, right? This is something people don't like, period. Don't tell people what to do with their life, even if the teachings are put, even if the teachings, for example, tell you, okay, what you should or shouldn't do. And even now, you just you know, hop onto YouTube and you listen to any Christian missionary, certainly from the United States, but I think any part of the world, they really latch on to the sexual dimension, especially when they speak to youth groups, speaking to young people. They always say, oh, you know, you have to follow God and follow Jesus. But then again, folks don't have sexually get married. That seems to be the overt or primary preoccupation. Now, there's so much more to Christianity from a doctrinal standpoint than these things, right? There's more to the Christian idea of doctrine from a how do you order your life, the right principles, the right beliefs, etc., than just what you do with your personal life, than what you're doing with your, who you're sleeping with. This is not helping. So the point of concern with when it comes to evangelization has to be the churches themselves. They need to look at themselves. They need to look inward, right? They need to look at their own leadership, their own governance, their own practices, okay? Churches are led badly. Hence, they create a bad persona. They look old and outdated. That's point number one. The churches construct this at fault. The institutional character of the churches are to blame. There are weaknesses, there are deficiencies which need to be addressed. That is point number one. Point number two, the people. People are weird, right? Frankly speaking, we don't want to see celibate men and women coming and telling us how to live our lives. We don't want the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of God has much more to it than a bunch of weirdos who basically reject all good things about life just weirdly and come here and tell us about happiness, right? That it does not involve pursuit of money and pleasure power and honor, good things, by the way, as long as you don't exploit it. We don't want to hear this. We don't want these kinds of people to talk to us. We don't want them talking down to us, okay? Sitting on their high moral pedestal, the fact that they're not getting laid, as if that's supposed to render them some kind of credibility. Maybe there's a bit of venom to my message today, but I think it's worth mentioning, because this is what goes on through people's minds when we listen to these people. And it sounds hypocritical. It sounds judgmental for where they stand. And this, of course, works logically into the third point, which is the teachings. Why is there so much emphasis on sex? Why is there so much emphasis on morality? Why is there so much emphasis on good conduct? Why can't we talk about things that we should be doing? Rather than say about things that we shouldn't do, what we ought not to do, right? This is where the inhibitory aspect of faith, right? Telling people how to live their life, which means don't do this and don't do that. We don't want to hear it. Why not tell us what we should be doing, what we ought to be doing, what we could be doing? This requires emphasis. And if these elements are engaged correctly, maybe the churches do have a chance to evangelize and Christianize or re-Christianize the West. All right, to close, 
This is the New Humanist Podcast. This is episode 26, the fifth of part four. And see you guys next time.